to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We are going to read just one verse tonight. I might read two, but we're only going to deal with one verse. Um, We're thinking last week about what it means to relate to our church leaders in this final section of um, the letter, Paul's letter to the Thessalonian church. And tonight we're thinking about what it means to relate to each other. Before we read the passage itself, um, I wonder if you've realized, I wonder if you've noticed that we live in a fairly flighty and non-committal age nowadays. Um, A long line of social scientists say that no generation on record has been so unlikely to find a place to put down proper roots and even make long-standing objective commitments for the good of other people we tend to be quite self-serving. Yeah, we are the kind of generation that likes to keep our options open and keep our commitment at what you might call a non-committal level. (laughs) And uh, that has quite an impact on relationships all over the place. Uh, Arm's length, it seems, is where we like to keep each other. And that's what makes stepping back from those relationships that we find ourselves in that are maybe just a little bit uncomfortable for us or that we just don't like, it's as simple as unfriending someone or unfollowing someone. Maybe that's why we've got a minister of loneliness appointed. Well, this has an impact on, not in the church, by the way, uh, in Parliament, okay, just to clarify. Uh, This does have, that's the next appointment, isn't it? (laughs) This has quite an impact on the church. Uh, And I want to give you an example of this, of this, arm's length relationships in church life. You've heard of drive-in movies, haven't you? Well, there are a few places in the States where you can actually go to a drive-in church. Uh, It's fascinating. Amazing things you find in your sermon research each week. Um, You know, drive-in Christian fellowship church. Uh, You come in your car, you stay in your car. Uh, The pastor preaches from a pulpit. That's what you see in the background there. That's the biggest pulpit ever, isn't it? It's like a proper building. And uh, you just tune in to the frequency on your radio. And if you want to amen what the pastor's just said, what do you think you do? Honk your horn. That's right, no honking tonight, please. Or you can, if you, you can hear a sermon, go home challenge without all the hassle of having to relate to anyone. Fellowship is as simple as waving to someone out your window. Now, I hope you think that that idea is absolutely ridiculous, but in practice, maybe some of us do like the idea of it. We might even be a little bit naive to think it could never happen to us, but it's frighteningly easy to end up with a drive-in mentality in our church. That's why one of the most countercultural things that we can do to commend the gospel to other Christians and to those who don't know Jesus at all is to make an all-in commitment to a local church by becoming a member. And I'm not talking about membership just in the sense that your name is on a roll. That is important. I'm talking about the day-to-day commitment where we actually embrace the biblical responsibility that's set upon us to care for each other and love each other deeply and to work together for something greater than our individual wants and preferences. The display of God's glory is what it's actually all about. Now that's the kind of commitment that God wanted to see in Thessalonica. 
And that's what he wants to see in Charlotte Chapel. That's why he has inspired the Apostle Paul to write this letter to them. And this is why we're reading it tonight. Um, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 5. I'm going to read verses 14 and 15 in a second, but let's pray first. Father, you have told us that when your spirit-filled people gather to hear your spirit-inspired word preached, uh, you teach, you train, you correct, you rebuke, so that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, please equip us in that way just now, in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, verse 14, Paul turns from address, from talking about how church members should relate to their leaders to how they should relate to each other when he says, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Amen. This is God's word. So we're going to look at five things over the next two weeks that church members do when they grasp God's vision for his church and commit to biblical church fellowship. Now, these five things from the off, I have to say, are not exhaustive, but they do actually cover a lot of grounds. And even though Paul's addressing specific situations in the life of the Thessalonian church family way back then, the same types of people, the same types of situations can be found in every church, in every generation. So it maintains its, uh, its application for us. So how are we supposed to commit to each other? What does caring for each other and loving each other deeply actually look like? What do church members do when they grasp God's vision for the church? Well, first of all, they warn idle members. This is what we see in verse 14. They warn idle members. And every church has them. People who place an unnecessary burden on a church family. Now, Paul has already addressed this issue in chapter 4. He says, some in the church family are idle. They weren't working to support themselves. It wasn't that they were unable. It was that they were unwilling and they try to explain away their idleness by trying to give some theological reasons, like, oh, we're waiting for the return of Jesus. But that's not the kind of, so we're just waiting for that. You know, we don't want to be busy doing other things. We're doing the main thing. Well, Paul writes to them in chapter 4 and says, well, that's not really what you do. When you're looking forward to the return of Jesus, you don't just wait and do nothing. You wait and work at the same time. And it's what, it, what you certainly don't do is place unnecessary burdens on others to feed you. So Paul did not like the attitude where members expected to get from others something that they wouldn't work for themselves, and that's why he addressed it. Now, I'm not sure we face the exact same problem nowadays. Idleness doesn't necessarily make us fin uh, financially dependent on each other. But in its various forms, idleness still creates unnecessary burdens on other members of the church family. So maybe we leave serving in a church to everyone else and fail to make a meaningful contribution in a particular area, but we still expect to be served. Or maybe we leave the financial support of the church to everyone else and fail to make a contribution to it, but we still expect to have the building open and warm. So we leave pastoral care, perhaps, of the church family to the pros, 
and fail to make a meaningful contribution to that, but we still expect these people to have their sermons tight on a Sunday. Well, idle members don't often realize just how detrimental their non-contribution to church, the church family actually is. In fact, the Bible says in this verse that it's disruptive. Paul calls their behavior disruptive. They're creating unnecessary strain on relationships and sending out the wrong message to each other and to a watching world about what kind of community the gospel actually creates. So, that's why Paul is calling on the whole church membership here to act. Not just one or two, the whole church. How? By getting rid of these idle people? No, not yet anyway. But by helping them to see the outcome of their behavior and to warn against it. It's quite simple. And that's one of the, one of the most helpful things that we can do for each other in local church life is tell each other when we're wrong and warn of the consequences of not changing. That's what Paul says in verse 14. We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. And the word warn is the same word that's used for admonish in verse 12, something that's tied to the responsibility of the leaders. In verse 12, the leaders are tasked with this, but it's not solely their responsibility. It's the whole membership's responsibility to warn and to admonish each other um, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, idleness is the specific sin that's in view here. But there are all kinds of behaviors, aren't there, that are not in keeping with a life that's transformed by the gospel, that put a strain on church family relationships and diminish the witness of the church. And if we care a lot about these things, which we should, we will warn each other, won't we? It is actually a great and underappreciated act of love for us to say, brother, sister, I've noticed this particular thing here. It's not in keeping with God's word. Can I help you think about it so that that might change? What do you think about this idea of admonishment, of warning? How willing are you to obey this biblical instruction? How do you feel about warning other people about their behavior, their sinful behavior, and the consequences of not changing? You're on a score of one to ten, one being I'm so not willing to ten being just wait till this service is over. Where would you score yourself on the willingness to practice godly, humble admonishment? Something we can easily shrink back from, isn't it? We worry about it. The other question in application is, how, are we, how willing are we to receive it? To receive the warning? Are we ready for that? Often we're not. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I'm warned about something or admonished about something, I automatically go into this defensive mode. I think Paul Tripp calls it the, he says, whenever you receive some kind of criticism or warning or admonishment of any kind, the inner lawyer comes out. That's true. But that's an anti-gospel and an unloving way to respond. So here's what we should do. Let's ask God to help us hear his voice when a brother or sister speaks a word of warning to us. 
Isn't that a kindness? When people humbly warn each other, let's listen for his voice. Love each other enough to do it. Love each other enough to encourage people to do it to us. Surely that is one of the signs of a healthy, of being a healthy church member. That's the first thing to look at tonight. The second thing, well, we encourage faint-hearted members. And every church has them. People who find the challenges of life discourage them, hindering their ability to cope, usually impacting their trust in God in some way. In verse 14, Paul uses the word disheartened to describe them. The word literally means small-souled. Now, we're not sure exactly what Paul is referring to here, where people are being small-souled, where they are anxious and uh, lacking in faith in some way. We do know from the background of the two letters to the Thessalonian church that they were being persecuted and that others were struggling with temptation. Some were seriously disheartened by grief and misunderstanding. But what we do know is that faint-hearted members exist in every church. And actually, we all take our turn at being faint-hearted, don't we? If we're honest, we'll say yes. But some do seem to struggle in this way for longer periods. And there are plenty of different things that dishearten us. Anything can make us feel small souls. But Paul is writing to the church family here to remind us that that's not what God wants for us. Now, the soul that's saved, according to various passages in the New Testament, is characterized by, by increasingly stable, steadfast, never shifting from the hope of the gospel kind of faith. That's what we read in passages like Colossians 1.23. Faith grows, matures, endures to the end. It's by no means a kind of straight trajectory. And although different seasons in life can make us stumble more than others, and the wobbly legs of either spiritual infancy or a serious dilemma or crisis, such doubt and such faint-heartedness is not meant to be permanent. It's that kind of faint-heartedness that James picks up on in his letter, doesn't he, when he talks about being wind-tossed and double-minded. I think Paul is trying to highlight for us that, that this doesn't help the fellowship and doesn't serve the witness of the church. But this is, the reason why he's highlighting this to us is not to criticize those who are feeling this way. Far from it. He's highlighting this to the entire church family to maximize the number of people within that church family who will be able to help with that situation. That's what he calls us to do. He calls on the whole membership to act. How? By encouraging the faint-hearted. Encouraging. One of the most helpful things that we can do for the discouraged is to offer encouragement. Encouragement is the antidote to unbelief. It heartens the disheartened. And a healthy church ought to be full of encouragers. What do encouragers do? How do they practice encouragement? Well, they offer clear teaching 
and they offer pastoral care. In the teaching side of things, the, teach, the thing that really heartens the disheartened is to reconfigure reality around God's word. I speak to so many people in pastoral situations. I had another conversation with a sister this morning where just the expectation of the Christian life was high, but there was a disappointment in not attaining it. And yet, she could see lots of failures, but I could see so much to encourage her with. We want God's words working through God's people to help us straighten out wrong thinking so that we might lift and hearten the disheartened, the dispirited. Paul actually just did this a chapter ago. In chapter 4, on the subject of believers who died before the Lord returned, they were anxious about this and having taught them the right things to expect with great sensitivity, he says in verse 18 of chapter 4, encourage each other with these words. If there's a solid foundation that cuts through the lies, if there's one voice that we will listen to, even if we won't listen to anyone else's, surely it's the Lord's voice the one who cannot lie and who always speaks the truth. So we offer clear teaching from God's word to encourage our brothers and sisters and we do it with pastoral care. Encouragement requires a certain level of sensitivity. So it's not, oh, pull your socks up and get on with it, man. It's, it necessitates sympathy, a big heart, gentleness, one author said, we should handle the discouraged the way we handle a flame of a candle as we move it from room to room, to cut the hand around the flame to shield it from turbulence. Same goes for the disheartened member. And again, don't miss that this is the whole church's responsibility. So here's a question. How do you feel about the idea of encouraging the disheartened? Yeah, we're all up for that one, aren't we? We're not so much up for the warning thing, but encouraging everyone, yes, we want to do that. But are we willing to obey the biblical instruction here? Again, I want to say a low-grade commitment to the church family would indicate a lack of love towards those who need encouraged. In the world, people distance themselves from disheartened people. They see people as needy. They feel like they don't have the time for folks who desperately need some kind of care and support. Not in the church. We don't move away from people. We move toward them. We don't keep them at arm's length. We embrace them. The other question, of course, in application is how willing are we to receive encouragement? Are you disheartened, friend? Maybe in your Maybe by feeling disheartened, you have a tendency to keep other members at a distance, whether that's physically and spending time with people or conversationally. Disheartened, dispirited people can often retreat from fellowship and companionship, but that's the wrong thing to do. When our faith is fragile, it's difficult to believe that there can be any real hope, but Paul says hope is found right here in the encouragement of your church family. 
That's why he's asking the whole church family in Thessalonica and to us today to help. Isn't it strange that when we feel feeble and small-souled, our tendency is to withdraw? It's kind of natural in a sense, but, you know, we say, I'm struggling a bit. I'm not sure I really want to go to growth group. And instead, we should say, I'm struggling a bit. I really need to go to growth group. I really need to be with the Lord's people on a Sunday. So here's what I want us to do as a church family together. Let's ask God to help us hear his voice when a brother or sister encourages us. And let's love each other enough to look out for and pay attention to the disheartened and not be slow to encourage them, to lift them up. Honestly, by doing so, we'll strengthen the love that we have for each other and the knock-on effect of that, Jesus says, is a greater witness to the world. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So church members demonstrate this healthy commitment to each other, firstly, by warning idle members, secondly, encouraging fate-hearted members. The third way, they help weak members. And every church has them. People who struggle with temptation and regularly fall into sin. In verse 14, Paul uses the word weak to describe them. He's not talking about physical weakness, just to clarify, but spiritual weakness, moral weakness. And again, we saw this in chapter 4. It seems that some people in Thessalonica were struggling to put to death the old way of life that was almost part and parcel of Greek culture back then. Sexual immorality in particular was a problem, and Paul addressed it head on. Now, sexual temptation is a big issue today, as it is in every age. And people who are weak in that area ought to be helped. I'm not going to go into all that just now. Adam preached a message on that a few months ago in this series. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. It was very good. But temptation to come, temptation to sin, comes in all shapes and sizes. Don't we, don't we know that? And again, it compromises our discipleship if we leave it unattended to. It compromises our witness to a watching world if we pay no attention to it and try and sweep it under the carpet. This is why Paul, again, in this passage, calls on the whole membership to act. How? By helping them. By helping the weak. And the word in the original language actually means to hold on to them with a tight grasp. It's as if you're responsible for providing some kind of stability to the person who might usually, habitually, in their weakness, fall. So if temptation threatens to cause people to fall, the church family works to hold weaker members up. It's a very graphic picture of the responsibility that we have for each other. Hold each other up. One of the most helpful things that we can do for those who fall into sin is hold them up. And a healthy church is full of, ought to be full of helpers. How though? How do we actually do this? Well, again, it's kind of similar to the previous point. We, we offer clear teaching. We offer pastoral care. And we all do that. But we need to help each other feel that we are not alone in our weakness, 
And especially when that weakness lasts and is prolonged to the point where we feel deeply guilt and shame. We need to act in that situation because guilt and shame are the two things that will seriously cripple your love for the Lord and your witness of him. It will make you shrink back from fellowship again. How do we help each other? Well, we need to love those who are weak. That's how we start. We love them. An attitude of the heart, of course. We were singing even at the start of our service of the immense love that God has towards us. For us, in our weakness, he didn't keep us at arm's length. In Jesus Christ, the eternal son, he moved towards us in love. That's what Christmas is all about. And we ought to do the same. To love each other. Also to know each other. So to love each other enough to pay attention to what's going on in each other's lives and to know each other to the extent that, well, talking about our struggles with temptation isn't a big deal. It's not, it's not an infrequent thing and it's a big thing. It's just a regular thing that happens that we're all used to and it's perfectly natural. We need to then speak the truth in love to one another. That's how we help the weak. Love them, know them, speak the truth in love to them. Teach the, the positive characteristics of godliness that God wants us to desire. Remember 2, three, two Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3 and following, where it says that his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through a knowledge of him, Jesus Christ. That the power to walk in godliness is ours. It's supplied by God. And it never runs out. And with that promise in mind, we roll up our sleeves and pursue godliness. And we help each other to pursue godliness. It's a community thing. We teach those positive characteristics of godliness that God wants us to put on. We speak about the terrible effects of sin. And like the passage from this morning's sermon, we warn humbly yet seriously of the consequences of suppressing the seriousness of sin, of ignoring it, and of turning away from Jesus Christ. And we talk about what change looks like when repentance is present. And then we walk with the weak. We don't just say, there's what you've got to do. See you in a month, and we'll see how it's going. No, we are side by side with these people. We get together with the weak frequently because that's what helping each other, holding on to each other, not letting go of them, holding on to each other and helping them through to help stabilize them. Know each other, get close, stay close, go deeper in our relationships. This kind of life together is what helps us to experience how potent and wonderful and personal a church family is and how God employs people like us, would you believe, as a wonderful means of grace in each other's lives. Who would have thought that I could be a blessing to you and you could be a blessing to me? strange and dysfunctional 
slightly odd-looking people that we are. I mean, who would have clumped all of us together? Yeah, only God, and only by the gospel that unites us. Only the gospel that removes every kind of hindrance to being some kind of ruggedly individualistic, I'm a lone ranger type of Christian to say, no, 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 you need him and she needs you, you all need each other. So why are you all playing about at being independent? It's not part of the plan. It's not for your best. It's not for your brother or sister's best. We read in chapters two and three about Paul being a pastor. He explained what it looked like to be a Christian leader. And as he addresses these things, this is not just this little random list. He's like, oh, I'm running out of parchment. I've got to write down all these things before I get to the end. He's thinking carefully about them. He's worried and concerned about the people in the church family that he is mobilizing those that God has already sent to make a difference in their lives, each other. It's wonderful. I love the church. So as partners under God's word and in prayer, a brother who knows me as me, not as kind of generic humanity, but who knows me and speaks the truth and love into my life and gives me a word such as is good for building up, it gives grace to me. We give grace to each other. Now, here's the question. What do you think about the idea of helping the weak? How are we supposed to obey, or how willing are we to obey this biblical instruction? The charge lands not on the... Do you have to understand this? this in this passage, the charge lands not on the weak believer to pick himself or herself up, but on the church family. There is a responsibility on that person, as we were thinking about this morning. But here we see how God sends his help. The burden of fighting sin in an individual's life lies as much within the congregation as with the individual. And to have enough proximity to that person, regularity with them, and awareness of them to spot the drift that comes from weakness is our responsibility as church members. Who said it was about voting? It's not. It's about this. It's about love. How willing are we to practice this? Second question in application, how willing are we to receive it? Again, this is my experience. I'm pretty sure it's yours. But when I fall into sin, I have a tendency to shrink back from church. Now, that might surprise you, because I'm here every week. But even being here, it's really easy to shrink back. It's really easy to engage superficially or to look busy and not really engage at all. We can all do that. We keep relationships at a distance because actually one of the reasons why is that we're worried that if we get too close to each other, people will see right through us and we're, we're too busy trying to save face that we forget about the impact of our, on our souls and then we forget then about the impact on our collective discipleship 
our life together, grown in Christ-likeness, and then we forget all about the importance of our collective witness to everybody who's not a Christian. And if that's us, then there are a couple of things that we need to realize. We're all the same. If you struggle with this, everybody else is just like you. We all sin. We all fall into temptation. You're not an anomaly. You're the same as everybody else. Two, and it took me a long time to get this, but when we drift away from God and other people because of this crippling sense of guilt, when we start to withdraw or turn away, get this, God sends his body, the church, to bring you back. God sends his body to bring you back, to minister to you. So don't refuse it. For our fear in refusing it, we refuse him. This is what God has designed it to do. To be a community of grace made up of people who have no comparative justification for saying to someone, you should really stop sinning in that particular way apart from our common view of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and our standing on God's authoritative word. It's the only justification. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to let us ask God to help us hear his voice when our brother or sister speaks and offers help. When they reach out to us to hold on to us and to help us stop sinning. And let us love each other enough to be so involved in one another's lives that we hold each other up. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, can I ask you a question? Uh, based on what I've described tonight, have you found a community like that anywhere else? I don't think it exists. I think even the church, with all her weaknesses, still holds out for us something much more beautiful than any kind of community that the world offers. A deeper sense of relationship in the things that matter. And plus, friends, I want you to see that these verses teach us to do what Jesus has just done for all who will actually believe in him. You see, these verses, as they describe the different things that are going on in the life of people within the church, simply describe, if you like, what's going on in our worlds, in your life, in the lives of everybody who, doesn't, who don't know Jesus. Without, well, in life, we are unruly, idle, and disruptive, rebellious, and defiant not following God or his ways. Without God, we're not small-souled. The Bible actually says we're dead-souled. There's nothing in us. We're not falling into temptation. We're actually diving into it purposefully, swimming in it. We're floating on our backs and squirting little fountains from our mouths with it. We love sin that much. But what I came to see when I was 19 years old, and what I hope you might come to see, what everybody in this room who believes it has come to see, is that God hates sin. And if we fail to see the danger in it, then we will be in trouble. 
when Christ returns. Or as is outlined in this book, he will. But the good news is that to save us from the judgment that comes when Christ returns, God sent his son, Jesus, to deal with our sin now. Actually, to do the three things that we've just seen are the church's responsibility in this passage. uh, To warn us, to encourage us, and to help us. He came to warn us that judgment will be the consequence of our sinful behavior and that we should listen to him. To encourage us to take him at his word when he said that he was coming to die on a cross to take away our sins and that he would rise again three days later to prove that his sacrifice on the cross was accepted. In other words, he really did take away our sins and to help us by saving on our of our, from our sin, and he holds fast to us, never ever letting go. To belong to him is the greatest joy. And to belong to him is to belong to his church family, his body. And you can do that simply by saying sorry for your sins, by thanking God for sending his son Jesus to die on the cross to take those sins away, and to ask him to help you live for him. There's a prayer team at the front down uh, after the service, or I'll be at the door afterwards. Be glad to talk to you about this. Ask the person who brought you. What about us, church family? Well, at the start, I said that we live in a flighty and a non-committal age. The temptation to think that arm's length relationships in a local church, uh, to think that they're okay, is strong. We need to be aware of that, but we need to let this passage remind us that the relationships we sometimes want, those arm's length ones, are not actually the relationships we need. We need to be close. Doesn't happen necessarily straight after a service. It can, but it certainly happens in smaller groups. We should try to be a part of one. You can find out information about that at the information point just out there on the left. But however challenging this might be to put into practice, God's idea of the church is so glorious and so important, we mustn't rest until we bring our relational commitment to each other in line with what the Bible asks of us. Remembering remembering that if we don't, the health and witness of our church family is at risk. Our discipleship compromised, our evangelism compromised, Let's be the church family that God would have us be. One thing you can do is buy a book. What is a Healthy Church Member by Thabiti Anyabwili is a great little book to read. Also, there's a, the third section in David Mathis's book, Habits of Grace, about belonging to his body, is a fantastic little read. Well worth it. You'll find this on the bookstall, and if you ask for it, I'm sure they'll be able to order those in for you. What is a Healthy Church Member? Or you'll get it somewhere else. But may God bless us as we minister to each other, as we seek to warn each other, encourage each other, and help each other in the coming days. Let's pray.